Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Our Foundations. This is the podcast where we cover topics such as politics, economics, political theory, money, all kinds of fun things like this. We cover mainly the core systems of our society and through them the evolution of society as a whole. We look at government, money, and education, and also some other aspects that are tied in with these areas and these systems. So today is our kind of summation episode where we are summing up some of the themes that we went over in the previous three episodes. The previous three, for a short recap, were the episodes on our more modern history of these systems and how we got to where we are today. We looked at modern political theory for the government episode, and that covered Concepts such as socialism and communism, fascism, libertarianism, democracy, basically all these political movements that have been experimented with and talked about and discussed and debated over the past, say, 100 years or so, mostly. And then for our money episode, we looked at the Federal Reserve System and fractional reserve banking And basically, how does our current money work? Where does it come from? How is it created? How is it managed? And how does the banking system work? And that was probably one of my favorite episodes we've done so far. Probably my second favorite episode we've done so far is the next episode, which was the last full episode that was released. And that was the one on modern education and the public school system. So if you skipped over that because you don't have kids and you're not a teacher and you didn't think that it applied to you, I would highly recommend going back and listening to that one. That was a very good one that basically lays the foundations for why our society is the way it is today, why people interact the way they do and think the way they do, and things of that nature. I won't spoil it for you, but there is a lot more to it than just thinking about your kids or your job or whatever the case may be. There's there's value there, and if nothing else, it should be interesting and entertaining. So again, that was probably my second favorite episode we've done. But with those, we looked at kind of the modern history and up into the current state of where things are today and all these areas. And so with this episode, typically we sum it up and do kind of a themes episode, and that's what this is. I wanted to touch on two conflicting economic schools of thought. And those are the Austrian school versus Keynesian economics. And the Austrian economics versus Keynesian economics has been a debate that's been going on for quite a while. And it has basically paralleled this time frame that we just talked about. It has a lot to do with education and what's being taught in the schools, and most of these were academic people that were involved in these two schools of thought. It also has to do with money. That is a core issue in the debate here, and it does have to do with government and politics and what the role of the state should be in a society. Basically, all these things that we've discussed over the past three episodes kind of all get wrapped up in this debate of Austrian economics versus Keynesian economics. And so I felt that was a very good topic to cover, as well as the fact that it really does lay the groundwork for some of our future episodes. And it 
keeps with this theme throughout this whole season, season one of our Foundation's podcast, of bringing us up to date on all this background and all these different philosophies and political theories and schools of thought and all these different things that basically have created society the way it is today and brought us to this point. So let's go ahead and dig in. Let's start off with our first individual, and he was the leader of Keynesian economics, and his name was John Maynard Keynes. He was a popular British economist. He had already made a name for himself by the time World War I came around, and so when World War I was getting wrapped up and there were peace, peace talks that were going on, Keynes was asked to come in and try to facilitate the negotiations and the peace terms and look at um, these consequences from an economic perspective. And so that was his role. He actually got so fed up with it that he ended up leaving late in the talks. He felt that the French and the British and all the people on that side were just basically hell-bent on revenge, and that was all they were worried about, and that's all they were focused on. They wouldn't listen to reason, and everything that they were trying to put on Germany and all these restrictions and demands and restitution payments, all this stuff, he said that it would just lead to another world war, that you're going to suppress them too much, they can't handle it, they will never be able to pay it off, you're going to put them in a position where they're going to be at risk for a nationalist leader to rise up and stir the people and bring them to a common cause to restore Germany to its rightful place before the French and British put us down, and wrongfully so. And that's what Keynes warned was going to happen. And guess what? If you know anything about history, that is exactly what happened with Hitler and World War II. Keynes did call that. And so he has an interesting relationship with government officials. He had many connections with officials in the government and many connections with academics in the academic realm. But he did not always agree with either one. He was not necessarily a mainstream academic, nor was he really one that got along very well with the top-notch politicians. Like I said, he disagreed with some of the ways that they handled things, and he was not big on the politics of the issue. So that is Keynes. And with that introduction, we need to look at what Keynesian economics actually is, and that is the whole point here. So the economic thought behind Keynesian economics is that what he did was mainly develop what we think of now as macroeconomics. So before this, pretty much when people were studying economics, it was a minor subset of the sciences, and it was mainly focused on inter individual interactions. And so Keynes started to look at the big picture and bring in these aggregate numbers and averages and look at different formulas and things like this. And he created basically the school of macroeconomics and that approach to looking at an economy in general. His main focus was on aggregate demand. And so Keynes believed that 
the aggregate demand in an economy and in a marketplace was pretty much the most important factor when it came to the direction of the economy and what was going on and how to explain behavior and how to manipulate behavior. And so his view was that when demand is low and people were not very interested and motivated to go out and buy a bunch of stuff, but rather they were saving their money, that this would lead to something similar to a recession or even a depression and that basically this was bad for the economy because people weren't out there spending money and buying goods, and because of that, these stores and businesses were not making that money and paying their employees, as well as their suppliers who the goods were manufactured by. Those manufacturers would have to cut back on how many goods they were producing, and so they would need less employees and less raw materials, and so then the raw material suppliers would be supplying less, and you get the chain of command here. Basically, that when demand was low, aggregate demand, overall demand, then that would lead to a recession in the economy. Now, on the flip side, when aggregate demand was high, he believed that this would spur an economy, but that you did have a risk of inflation. So if you have too many people that are wanting to go out there and buy a bunch of stuff and everybody's really motivated, everybody's feeling really good about stuff, uh, consumer sentiment was very high. If this is the case in an economy, then it is good for the economy. However, with so many people wanting to buy a limited supply of products, it's going to drive up their prices. And with that, all your prices are going to rise, not just the prices at the store or for the services that someone wants to buy and pay for. It is also going to be those suppliers and those raw material suppliers and basically same chain that goes on here. And that spurs inflation because the prices all go up but people are still holding the same amount of money and still holding $1, which used to be able to pay for a gallon of milk, but now can only pay for one egg. And so you kind of, extreme example, but you get the point. That is the risk with very high demand. And so what Keynes believed is that the government should step in and that their job should be to moderate the swings in an economy and in a market for a country. He believed that that was their job, that was their duty, and that they would be able to do this through manipulating aggregate demand. And so he believed that what they should do is basically, if you see that demand is fairly low and going down, then the government should try to stimulate spending however they decided to do so. He had multiple ideas of how to do that, but basically that the government should stimulate demand, get demand to go up, and that even though this may cause a small amount of inflation, this wasn't really a big deal, it's just a small amount, and we just want to kind of even things out and keep the economy from going into a recession. And on the flip side, if the economy was really starting to burn hot and people were really out there, really motivated. They were feeling really good about their purchases and purchasing power and wanting to buy a bunch of stuff. He believed that the government should start to temper that a little bit and back off a little bit with the money supply and with other ways of manipulating the economy that he proposed. 
And so he believed that the government should step in and start to basically kind of tamp down this fervor that was going on in the economy. And because of this, that would prevent mass inflation and runaway inflation. And so basically, when you put this together, the government would be able to keep an economy from going into a recession, as well as keep an economy from getting overloaded and have runaway inflation. And so the government would be able to take these boom and bust cycles of the market and kind of even them out. There would still be rises and there would still be falls, but they'd be pretty moderate if the government did a good job at this. Another key concept that Keynes had was the multiplier effect. And this really comes into play when the government is trying to stimulate an economy. The idea of this is that Government pays workers for public projects. So if the government wants to stimulate demand, aggregate demand, and bring it up, then what the government might do is fund a public works project. So maybe build some bridges. Let's say the government's going to build 100 bridges in the country. Well, when they do that, they're going to have to hire workers. The government will have to hire individual workers and contractors, construction workers, and pay them to build these bridges. Well, what happens? Naturally, when you pay these workers, these workers have money. And what happens when people have money that they would not have had otherwise or did not have before? Well, usually they spend a good bit of it. They might save some, but you are going to have more spending when you have more money. And more spending means more demand in the market. So basically, any money that the government puts into the economy, especially through public works projects, and it wouldn't even matter what it was. He gave a silly example, and I don't even remember what it was. I think it was something like digging up rocks and then reburying them, just something pointless that he proposed. And he said, even doing something that pointless that really did absolutely no good for anyone would still increase demand and have a positive effect on the economy because you're still paying people to do this useless task and then they are going to have money that they will spend in the economy and in the marketplace and at businesses and for services and whatever else and that this would stimulate aggregate demand which is good for the economy he believed and so this was the multiplier effect every dollar that the government spends not only are they getting a dollar's worth of work from somebody and actually having something that they're creating, let's say a bridge in our example, but they are also giving a dollar to the marketplace that gets spent on goods and services, which then is an extra dollar that went to those suppliers. And you see that this dollar did not only go to the workers themselves, but it also went to stimulate the businesses and the suppliers and the raw goods manufacturers and just all these different layers of the chain, and that was the multiplier effect. That dollar is being multiplied and had a larger effect than the dollar itself. And that was one of Keynes's theories here. The other aspect of this was that whenever the government started a public works project, it would take people. Now, there are only a certain number of people in a country at any given point in time. And so if you're going to increase the number of jobs and hire more people, those are going to be people that more than likely were not working before. Or they are going to come out of their current jobs to work at this job, and then their old job would be free, and people who were not working before might fill those jobs. Or 
you have the long, complicated strain, and we won't even get into that, where someone else fills their job, and someone else fills their job, and eventually you get to the point where people that are unemployed are going to be filling some of these positions. And the whole point behind this was that not only are you multiplying the money that government is putting into the economy, the government is also not having to spend as much on things like welfare systems and public projects that are for the poor and for people that were down and out and unemployment and all these kinds of things that were basically government welfare programs. Well, with these people being employed now where they weren't before, the government is no longer having to support them. And so the government is spending less money on these welfare programs and they're also getting the benefit of every dollar they put in to the economy is getting multiplied. So this is a win-win situation that Keynes believed, and that was his proposal, and that was his whole philosophy here. So what Keynes wanted to do was to look at the big picture. That is Keynesian economics. You look at the big picture, you forecast with equations and formulas, and you base all this on aggregate data, basically looking at the whole data set and the whole economy, and the government should control monetary policy. The government should use it to control markets. The government should control the economy and try to moderate the swings in the economy, and they had tools in their toolbox that they could use to accomplish this project, this task, this goal for them. And that's what Keynes believed they should do. He was a little bit of an optimist because he believed that the government could do this and do this well. Many people disagreed with that. But nonetheless, that was his view. And that's the view of Keynesian economics. It is all about basically the government running the system, the economic system, the marketplace. And it is the idea of central planning. That is a term that you have probably heard of before. That's what most governments in today's world follow. Keynesian economics is generally what is taught in most high schools and colleges. Many, hopefully, still at least touch on Austrian economics. But if you're not at a school that particularly leans towards the Austrian and free market perspective, Keynesian is more of the standard. That is what most of the first world countries around the world today use. They basically have governments that do control monetary policy, that do step in to the economy, that do try to level out the highs and lows of the economy. Look at the 2008 financial crisis. What happened? Well, when everything started going downhill, the government stepped in and tried to save the day. And that was the Keynesian philosophy in full swing. So let's now move into the Austrian school. I will also start off with a few individuals, although I will not go into much detail here. You have Ludwig von Mises, and he was probably... He generally is considered the beginning of the Austrian school. He mainly started with the idea of praxeology, and we'll get to that, and he was an academic. He was involved in some government consulting, but mainly he was in the academic field. And then he had a student that continued in this train of thought, and this was 
Friedrich Hayek, and he continued this idea of praxeology and took it another step further. Then later on, you had another individual, Murray Rothbard, that took all these ideas and kind of summed them up and went to an even further field and got more into the political ramifications of all this stuff. So going to the actual economic thought, like I said, this all began with Mises and his idea of praxeology. Praxeology is the study of human action. And Mises really focused on the fact that a marketplace is just made up of individual transactions, voluntary transactions. One person has a dollar, but they believe that a pack of gum is more valuable than the dollar that they own, so they voluntarily give that dollar to a shop owner, and the shop owner, who believes that that dollar is more valuable than the pack of gum, voluntarily gives the customer the pack of gum, and everybody's happy. Both parties are satisfied, and that was an individual transaction. Well, you might have the next customer come in that thinks that pack of gum is only worth 50 cents. Well, if the price is a dollar, obviously he is probably not going to buy that pack of gum. And so you can see that there are not hard and fast rules that you can use to judge everybody on how they will react in any given economic situation. And because of this, Mises thought that looking at aggregate numbers and using formulas and equations and approaching economics from that type of assessment was not one that would yield very accurate results. He believed that since everything boiled down to an individual's perspective and value judgments, that there are going to be different circumstances for different people who will make different decisions in the basically same situation of should I make this purchase or should I save this money or whatever the economic situation you want to put an individual in, they're going to have different circumstances. They're going to have a different job than someone else. They're going to have a different amount of savings that they have put aside than the next person. They're going to have a different value put on whatever the good or service is than someone else might have. And so you can't try to group together and put all human beings into one category and say that in this situation, this is how people will react and respond. Well, obviously you can't do that. And so what Mises believed is that the correct approach to economics is to not fall into the trap of using these set formulas and equations and aggregate numbers, but rather to focus on the individual aspect, focus on praxeology, on human action, not necessarily why people do what they do, that would be more psychology, and not necessarily looking at the aggregate numbers and the broad views, that would be more the Keynesian view, but rather just look at strictly what people do, what decisions they make. doesn't matter why, doesn't matter if they are good or bad, that's more philosophy. It's more about what they do, and that is all that matters. It all boils down to what the transaction is, if someone goes through with it, and that's it. You can then look at the effect that that said transaction has on the economy as a whole. And you can look at bigger picture deals here, but overall, you're just looking at human action. He believed very strongly that prices 
were set by voluntary market transactions. So we have this idea that did come before Mises, and that is that of marginal utility. And this was from Charles Manger. And so if someone was to say that there was another beginning to Austrian economics, it would officially start at Manger, not Mises. But Mises was the one that really took it into what we view it as today. But Menger was the one that had this idea of marginal utility, where basically everyone has a value scale. So say for myself, the most important thing for me at this moment would be a carton of ice cream. That is the most valuable thing for me. The second most valuable thing for me would be a bottle of water. The third most valuable thing for me might be a dollar. And the next most valuable thing for me might be a piece of paper and pencil. And so you can see that for me, a carton of ice cream is the most important thing for me right now. That's what I really want the most. And so if I had a certain amount of money to spend, the very first thing that I would do to satisfy my desires would be to purchase a carton of ice cream. I am not going to purchase any chicken fingers. I am not going to buy a blanket or a coat. I'm not going to buy a book. I'm going to buy some ice cream because that's the most important thing for me. And you saw that that was much more important to me than a bottle of water, which was also more important to me than a dollar bill. So if I have a dollar bill and I have the ability to purchase a bottle of water with it, well, obviously that bottle of water is more important to me than that dollar bill was. So I would definitely make that transaction voluntarily with somebody if they would give me a bottle of water, and I would just have to give them this dollar bill, which is not as valuable to me on my scale. So hopefully that gives you a rough idea of marginal utility, where you basically, everybody has this scale of value of the things that are important to them, and everybody's value scale, for the most part, is going to be different. So in a marketplace, you have this giant group of probably thousands or millions of individuals, all with their own value scales. Some might value a bottle of water more than $2, whereas some might only value a bottle of water more than a quarter. And so what ends up happening is that you have all the people that want a bottle of water they are going to be willing to trade a certain amount of money for that bottle of water depending on where that bottle of water falls on their value scale. And so you also have businesses that are in the exact same boat. They are producing bottles of water and they have their own value scales on how much that bottle of water is worth to them, on how much they value a certain amount of money more than that bottle of water that they made and produced and put to market. So you end up having this deal where a business might be willing to take, say, 75 cents or more. Obviously, they would prefer to get more if they could for this bottle of water. But the consumers out there, maybe most consumers are willing to pay, let's say, 80 cents or less for a bottle of water. Well, you can see that if the business is looking for 75 cents or more and most of the customers are looking for 80 cents or less, 
then you're probably going to have a price that lies somewhere between 75 cents and 80 cents. And that is how prices are formed. That was Mises and Hayek's view of how the marketplace works. That's how prices are set. It's based on different value judgments of different individuals. And you are always going to have some individuals that value their money more than the price that a business puts on a certain good or service and will not make that purchase. However, you will also have plenty of people that might value that bottle of water more than $5 and it's quite a steal to them if they can buy it for 80 cents and they're overjoyed. Well, the business is very happy too because they sold it for 80 cents when they only really wanted 75 for it. So they're really happy. And so you get these different transactions, but the point is that they are all voluntary, that it is always a win-win situation. And it is always going to be according to the value scales of both the businesses and entrepreneurs and the individuals in the marketplace. So this is how the markets are formed, according to Austrian economics. They believe that businesses and entrepreneurs will fill in the gap for demand and, on the flip side, cut supply. And their gauge for when to increase their production and when to cut back on production is profits and losses. So according to whether or not a business is making a profit or a loss, that's how they will make their decisions on what to do with their business. So let's say, for example, we have an entrepreneur that started up a company that sells bottled water. We'll stick with this example here. And they are selling out of their bottles of water. People are buying them off all the shelves. All the stores are selling out and asking for more. Well, obviously, the company and the entrepreneur that makes these bottles of water, they were selling them for a price that they were willing to sell them for, which means that they were probably making a profit off of this. And if they're selling pretty much all the bottles of water that they put to market, they're probably making a decent profit. And so if they see that demand is high enough, then what they would do is in order to make even more profits... And because of the profits they're already enjoying, they will produce more bottles of water to meet this demand. And this just makes sense. People want more bottles of water. The company wants to make more money, and they can if they produce more bottles of water. Again, it's a win-win situation. On the other side, if their bottles of water are not really selling very well in the stores, people are not as interested in buying their bottles of water, well, the company will probably cut back on their production because if they're producing X amount of bottles of water, let's say 100,000 bottles of water, but they're only selling 50,000 of them, well, they're probably going to be losing money and they're either going to be making a loss as a company or they're at least going to be cutting into their profits quite significantly. And because of this, they will probably cut back on their production. They might also lower their prices to sell more bottles of water, and that again cuts into their profits. They don't have as much money to invest in the business and to buy new equipment and hire new people on the assembly line and everything else they do. They're going to cut back on their spending, cut back on their production. And this is because demand was lower in the marketplace in general and in the economy. And so this is the Austrian view of 
how demand is dealt with. It's not the government that steps in to regulate demand and swings in the marketplace, but rather it is just a natural reaction of the market itself. The market has this spontaneous order. This is a concept where no one person is running the economy as a whole. No one person is running the market. A good example that I like to use comes from Russ Roberts from the Econ Talk podcast, and he uses the example of loaves of bread in, I think he usually uses New York City. But the point is that a city will produce a certain amount of bread and pastries every morning. And there is no one person that is telling these different bakers and different stores and different supermarkets how many loaves of bread and single pastries and donuts and bagels that they should produce. No one person is in charge of that. No group of people is in charge of that. There is no one running this system. Yet somehow, every single morning, there is roughly the correct amount of breakfast pastries that are available every morning for the people in the city. There are roughly the correct amount of loaves of bread and bagels and pastries and everything else, even though no person is directing this. No one is telling these people how much to make. And so the idea is that there is this spontaneous order that emerges out of a market if it's left to its own devices and left to operate as normal. And these forces are that of supply and demand and profits and losses and motivations and incentives for entrepreneurs as well as individuals in the marketplace. And basically all these things work together to create a very efficient system that is also very effective just in and of itself. And that is how a market works. So from the Austrian perspective, when you get into the role of government, they look at any actions of the government in the economy is more interference and that any government interference will distort the market. Because if the government comes in and changes something like interest rates or sets specific price controls or quotas or whatever the case may be, whatever the government comes in and does in the marketplace, that that is going to create distortions in the profits and losses in the business, distortions in what demand is viewed as by these companies and what production is going to be focused on and how much a company is going to produce because they don't really see how the market is really reacting and they don't really see the choices that individuals are really making because these actions and these choices are basically being covered up or at least distorted by the actions and the choices of the government and that interference in the economy. So in general, most Austrians believe that the government should stay out of the markets because, obviously, according to this view, it is just going to cause trouble and it will not be a good thing. So when you get into the business cycle, the boom-bust cycle of the markets in general, we see a different view by the Austrians. So with Keynesian economics, Keynes had this idea of animal spirits, and that would be that 
basically people just get carried away. And when people get really carried away with spending a bunch of money and investing a bunch of money in a certain area, that that is why you have these spikes in demand and the huge inflation runs and that kind of stuff. And then people basically get carried away in the opposite direction. And Keynes believed that people get extra averse to risk and they're really worried about their losses and they start pulling all their money out and people freak out and overreact and that's when you have the busts and that was Keynes's view on why you had the boom bust cycle and again he thought that the government should step in to moderate that and to fix that and to control that well the Austrian view is very different the Austrian view is that the government is actually the one that generally creates the booms and then creates the busts and that this government interference and the distortions in the market that they create this is what the source of the booms boom bust cycle is so hayek was really big on interest rates and according to the austrian school interest rates is just another price and again it's set by voluntary transactions. So an interest rate on, say, a loan to buy a house is going to be measured by the supply and demand in the market of how many people want to buy a house, how much money they are willing to give a bank in order to be able to get a loan for that house, and how much money they're able to pay the bank and they're willing to pay the bank over the course of, let's say, a 15-year mortgage loan. And so depending on the individual's choices and their value scales that will set a price on the interest rate that they are willing to pay for this loan. And the business is in the business of giving loans, and that is what they do. That is their service and their product. And so their price for this product is the interest rate. So basically, interest rates are just another price, and that's all it is. And so what the Austrians believe is that if the government comes in and sets rates at an artificially low level, and this is what Keynes believes the government should do if they want to stimulate more demand and speed up an economy and get the markets going. Well, what the Austrians believe is that the government does this and brings interest rates down too low, then what happens is that businesses and individuals will be much more able to borrow money. And this is money that they probably would not have borrowed had interest rates been at their normal market rate. But since the interest rates are extra low, then businesses are probably a lot more willing to take money and put it into new investments and new projects, which, in credit to the Keynesian view, this does stimulate the economy. However, what the Austrians say is that if you have all these businesses that are getting all this cheap money and they're putting it into all these projects that probably are just barely profitable. But it is well worth it for the companies because even though a project may only get a 2% return, if they can borrow the money for just 1% on interest, then they are making a 1% gain, pretty much guaranteed. As long as interest rates don't change, then they're going to be making a profit. So why not borrow more and more and more money because every dollar they borrow they can make a return on it, a minimum of 1% gain on every dollar they they borrow. So they're going to be incentivized to borrow more and more money and put it into all these projects, even if they're only marginally profitable. 
And what this does is that this then creates a bubble. This is what creates these large swings in demand and in consumer sentiment and these swings in the economy that create the bubble, this boom cycle, because all this money is flowing in. And as these companies, they borrow more money, they start funding these projects, well, then they have to hire more people and they order more supplies from manufacturers and even your raw goods are having to produce more. And all this stuff is going on and this is really getting the economy going and going. And it's probably getting up much higher than it really should because the government has interest rates set artificially low. Now, what the Austrians believe is that the result of this is that you have the bust. So they did start to stimulate the economy and things were going really well, but it was only because the government had interest rates set artificially low and it was really cheap to borrow money. And so what happens is that as interest rates start to go up, which the government is pretty much going to have to do if they were the ones that set the rates extra low and they created this big boom, this big bubble, and now inflation is starting to take off, well, they've got to raise interest rates. Um, Even according to Keynesian economics, that's what they would have to do. They raise interest rates in order to tamper that that spirit down, that over-enthusiasm of the markets and the businesses. The problem, though, is that as the government then starts to raise interest rates, well, all of a sudden, all these projects and all these businesses and all this money that was loaned out to make this marginal profit, they are no longer making any profit. Many of them are actually making a loss now because interest rates have gone up. So using the example we had mentioned earlier, a company borrowed money at 1% and they were able to make 2% on it. So they basically were guaranteed to make a 1% profit on every dollar they borrowed. Well, the problem is now rates have gone up to, let's say, 2.5%, which is still pretty low. But the problem is that the projects they were funding and that they borrowed money for are only making a 2% return. But now they're having to pay 2.5% interest, so they're actually losing money. Well, what's going to happen? Of course, most businesses are going to shut down those projects. They're going to cancel those endeavors and those investments. And with that, you are then going to have projects that are getting closed down, businesses that are getting shut down, individuals that had put up more money and borrowed money than they should have, and now they're realizing it. Maybe they're going to start foreclosing on their houses or sell their brand new car they bought so they can get something that they actually really can't afford. And businesses, as they shut down these programs and these projects, they're going to have to lay people off which means that people have less money, they're not spending as much, and basically this is the bust. So you had the boom that was stimulated by these artificially low interest rates, and then now you have the bust as interest rates start coming back up. And so this is the Austrian view of the business cycle, that it really is the government's fault, that maybe you'll have some market swings in general as the markets start to equalize to different changes in the environment, of the markets themselves, but in general, they will start to correct themselves based on these incentives of businesses and individuals, of profits and losses, of their own value judgments. However, when you have the government step in and interfere and distort all these different signals, distort the profit and loss 
tool that businesses have to use and they distort the cost of borrowing money, the interest rates, then markets are not able to regulate. And because of this, you have this boom-bust cycle that really starts to take off and can have some major effects and consequences and swings because of what government has done. So, Overall, with the Austrian school, you see that all activity is done by individuals, and all these individuals have unpredictable reasons and unpredictable behaviors, and everybody's situation is different. So this is in stark contrast to the Keynesian view that you can just look at the aggregate numbers and aggregate demand and just lump everybody into the same camp and just look at averages, and that's how you should judge an economy. Well, Austrians are saying, no, you can't do that because everyone has a different opinion, and you might be able to get some insights on what's going on by looking at these averages and aggregate numbers, but overall it's very dangerous and that's not what you should rely on. The Austrians also, we see, were very big fans of the market and having free and open markets outside of government control because they discuss the fact that markets are very efficient and they are very effective at setting prices. So, they also end up being very good at allocating resources and at incentivizing behavior constructively for both businesses and companies, entrepreneurs, as well as individuals and consumers and spenders. And they really, markets in general, will be able to regulate the whole economy in a way that is much better than anything a government can do. And not only is it better than what a government can do, but when the government steps in, they start screwing everything up. And that's really the problem with the economy. So these are the two different schools of thought, the Keynesian view versus the Austrian school. And moving on from that, there are some more modern theories and movements that sprung up out of these two schools. So to go from Keynesian economics, one of the more modern views that we hear discussed a lot right now is MMT, that's Modern Monetary Theory. And the idea behind this, and it stems from a Keynesian view of economics, is that a government, in general, at least in today's world, governments with fiat monies, government controls money. Money is all fiat. Government is responsible for how much money is in the economy, for interest rates, for monetary policy in general. Basically, government controls everything related to money. Government actually creates and prints money. And since money no longer is backed by a certain commodity like gold or anything else, there is nothing really holding government back from doing whatever they believe would be best for the economy and for the country. Well, because of this, a government is not responsible for a business-like budget. They don't have to balance the budget. They don't have to make a profit because they're in complete control of the money split. They can just print more money. And you do have the risk, and most modern monetary theorists believe that there is a risk of inflation and overstimulation and things like this if they print too much money, but that in general, the government has a lot of leeway here. And 
that it's kind of silly to expect the government to pay all of its debt. Well, why would they? They can just print enough money to pay the interest payments, and what's the point in paying off the balance? There, there is no point. And what's the point in having a balanced budget? Why don't they just print the money that they need for the programs that they want to fund, and they believe that these programs are what's best for the country and the economy? And so, yes, it may stimulate a small amount of inflation because they're increasing the money supply as they print more money, but it's not that big of a deal. Some in the MMT camp actually believe that taxes are pretty pointless, and this does make sense in a fiat system because all the government is doing is taking money from its citizens and then putting it back into these programs and systems. Why do they go through all this and spend all this money, all the money they spend on the IRS and collections and all the political debate with tax rates and all this stuff? Why don't they just not collect any taxes and just print the money? The people will be taxed in probably a much more fair manner and they will be taxed through inflation. And this is more of an indirect tax. So not only is it probably more fair, people are probably going to be much less likely to be upset about it. Most people do not enjoy paying taxes. But if they don't really see the fact that their money is losing value through inflation, and it's kind of just something that creeps up over time, then people are probably not going to be as upset about it. And the whole point is, why does the government go through this whole rigmarole of everything they do when they can just print the money they need as long as they don't get carried away with it and spark massive runaway inflation, then there's really no point to it. And that's the modern monetary theory of money, is that we have this fiat system, and yeah, it's totally different than what we have ever had in the past, and a gold-backed currency and all this stuff, and it has lifted the restrictions off government, so why are we still being held back by these chains of the past? We should break out of these and basically just do what's best and have the government control it all. That's the MMT theory. The effects that the Austrian school has had on some more modern concepts, uh, one would be more on the political side, and that would be that of the libertarian camp. So libertarians generally follow the Austrian school of economics, and they believe that government should be very small, if not non-existent. You also then have the more extreme view of the anarcho-capitalists that believe that there should be no government, that you should just have markets basically regulate everything. And we're going to do an episode on that. That should be lots of fun. It's very interesting. And these are views that did spring up out of the Austrian school. And Murray Rothbard that I mentioned earlier, he was one that really laid this out really well. A few very good books that I would highly recommend would be Man, Economy, and State, if you're willing to get into something that is pretty long and kind of textbooky at the beginning, but it really lays out the Austrian School of Economics on all those theories and concepts very well, and then gets into the politics and the role of government and all this stuff. Very good book. The other one I would recommend by him would be Anatomy of the State, and it talks about the state and its role and the markets and government's role and all this kind of stuff. Uh, he does touch on moral issues like taxation is theft. That's a common belief of the ANCAPs as well as some libertarians and that it's an intrusion on our own individual rights and property rights when you have governments that try to dictate what we can and can't do, what we can and can't buy, 
as long as we are not initiating force on someone else or harming someone else, then the government should just butt out and mind their own business and let me do what I'm going to do. That's the more libertarian view. So another kind of more modern concept that has come up that I would say was founded at least in part by the Austrian school would be that of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies. The idea here is to have a money that is not controlled by the government, that is actually controlled by people and by free and open markets. And we're also going to do an episode on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies coming up in the future. And then we will then do one on blockchain, which is the technology that Bitcoin first started and that most of the cryptocurrencies in existence today are built on. But there is so much more that blockchain does from tracking logistics for businesses to doing remittances and payments to doing voting systems for countries and just all different kinds of stuff, identity systems and hack-proof databases, just very interesting stuff. So we'll do an episode on Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies and then one a little later on on blockchain technology in general and get into all those other aspects and should be very interesting. But that pretty much wraps up everything we're going to discuss today. Hopefully now you do know what Keynesian economics is, what Austrian economics is, their differences, as well as some of their similarities. They don't have too many, but there are some. So let me wrap up with our different places that you can go to to get more content and information from myself and about this podcast and the things we discuss here. We've got our website at ourfoundations.podbean.com and that's the podcast website. There is a menu button at the top left you can click on and it has resources where it talks about different podcasts and books and authors and things like that for the content that we cover. We have a tab on there for the outline for the podcast and future episodes. I've got season one mostly outlined. I do get in there and edit that because I change my mind. I add in episodes. I change names for episodes, that kind of stuff. I keep it fairly updated and that'll give you an idea at least of where we're going and what's coming up. So if you're interested in that, check that out. There is a link on there that says support indirectly, shop on Amazon, something of that nature. If you click on that link, it takes you to Amazon. And if you just do your normal Amazon purchases, you don't have to buy the book that pops up when you click on that. Although I would highly recommend that book. That um, That is not the point. The point is, if you use that link and then do your normal Amazon shopping, that Amazon will be kind enough to donate a very small percentage of that money to the podcast, and that goes to helping us basically pay all the bills that go into doing the podcast. And that would be greatly appreciated. Another way to support us financially would be to go to patreon.com slash our foundations, and there you can donate and hopefully sign up for a monthly pledge. And if you do so, you do have access to some bonus content. I've got a few bonus episodes out there already and a few different posts about different things, some about investing, and it's you can just check it out if you're interested. That would be extremely appreciated if you would support this content and this podcast and myself. These are all included in the show notes, so you can look there and click on the links. You don't have to memorize all these different addresses. 
But they're all there. The other link that will be there will be our email address, which is our foundations at protonmail.com. And feel free to email with any questions, concerns, comments, debates, or anything, really. You are welcome to email me, and I will pretty much guaranteed get back to you within probably a few days at the most. And if you have anything you want me to cover in particular, any questions you have about something we covered, any just comments or feedback or whatever, please, I would love to hear from you. So, the final request I have is that you please click on the little stars that will rate this podcast. That is extremely helpful. I know most people just don't do it because you don't want to spend the five seconds to do it. I don't do it for a lot of podcasts too. I try to force myself to most times. But it is not intuitive. You just listen and you move on. You forget about it. But it really is helpful if you would just click on the number of stars that you believe this podcast deserves, which hopefully is five stars, but it doesn't have to be. You can give me an honest review and just give us a review. If you're willing to type a sentence out that says what you think about the podcast, that would be even better if you could rate and review the podcast. But please do so. It really does help us out. It helps the podcast get out there. helps other people find this. There are people that are interested in economics and politics and education, but they will have a hard time finding this podcast if it is not popping up on the different podcast listening apps like iTunes and what is it? Apple Podcast, I guess, technically, and Stitcher, Podcast Addict, all the different ones. So if you don't mind, please get on there. Give us a rating. Give us a review. Thank you very much for that support. Thank you, our supporters, those on Patreon. Thank you very much. Special thank you to you. And that is it. So I'm out. Peace. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.